Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm David Kern with the Cersei Podcast Network, and this is the Ask Andrew Podcast, a weekly show in which Andrew Kern answers your questions about the purpose, essence, and practice of Christian classical education. The episode you are about to listen to was recorded this spring as part of the Ask Andrew webinar series and has been lightly edited to suit the podcast experience specifically. To learn more about the webinars, the podcast, or how to submit a question, head over to searcyinstitute.com slash askandrew. And with that, here is this week's episode. Hope you enjoy. Welcome, everyone, to another Ask Andrew Tonight, we have a continuation of the last questions. Take it away. All right, thanks. But um, just briefly, I'm going to address the the harmony rhetoric, sorry, the rhetoric as ruler question, but I'm also going to do that rather concisely. And then I think it was Tess, you asked at the last session about how to handle the coronavirus or how am I handling it or something along that line, how to live in this weird situation. So I, I do want to address that mostly. And then, you know, that's one of those things that we could talk about for a very, 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 very long time. And we could talk about it until it's over, if it ever has a decency to come to an end. So let me, let me just um, pick up the last question about, about the rule of rhetoric. And I think I started to say in the last session that that rhetoric is has a co-regent. Did I go into this at all? As I remember, as I recall, that I wanted to say, and I think I said, that rhetoric rules, but not by itself. Rhetoric is kind of the prince ruler, and then there's a princess that is co-regent with rhetoric. Did I did I mention that? And who's the princess that's co-regent with rhetoric? Does anybody remember that one? It's harmony, exactly. Harmony. And that's why Rhett is a male name and harmony is a female name. So if you ever want to write a novel about the South coming to an end or something or the Civil War, you could maybe bring those two characters into it. Probably not, though. But the thing about it is rhetoric and harmony are both staggeringly powerful. But in a world that worships power, harmony is almost completely neglected or misunderstood, or I don't know what exactly the word would be, but let's just say not appreciated. And I think that's in a, in a deep sense where we are. We certainly don't appreciate the place of rhetoric, but I think we appreciate the power of harmony even less. So let me just say a couple words about about rhetoric, how it rules compared to how harmony rules. And and here's the basic point. If I could reduce it to a proposition, I'd say rhetoric rules by proclamation and harmony rules by inspiration. And the idea here is that harmony rules, I don't know, you might say by nagging. You, You could, if you want to go all negative, you could say it rules by nagging. You feel discord, right? You feel it. Nobody has to tell you that you're in discord. You just feel it. And so then it's up to you to grow up and figure out what's causing the discord, as it were. Whereas rhetoric rules by proclamation, guides by deliberation, tells you this is what we're supposed to do. This is what you ought to do. And then and then guides you by teaching you how to deliberate. It enables and equips. And how does it do that? It enables and equips by by arousing and nourishing and and disciplining the desires that are placed in our soul, if it's done right. But most of all, can I say it this way? By harmonizing them all. And in that sense, harmony even rules rhetoric. Now, really, in my philosophy of being, 
what I'm saying here is that reason, biblically understood, or at least, at the very least, classically understood, certainly not understood in a modern sense, reason rules overall. Because it is reason that harmonizes things. It is reason that is the harmony of things, right? We've talked about how in grammar and logic and, and mathematics and so on, what you're always trying to do is find the resolution of the discord. Do you know that the word reason comes from the Latin ratio through that whole French journey into English? But ratio, R-A-T-I-O, literally originally meant something like proportion. And what's a proportion? Well, it's an analogy. One is to two, is two is to four. But, but there's a harmony going on there. These things are different, and yet they're the same. So reason is fundamentally musical. And, and so I would say, therefore, that rhetoric is the ruler of the arts, but harmony rules rhetoric. And that what governs all the arts, what makes all the arts become the arts, is reason, logos. And so I find that very helpful. Harmony maintains, it rules by inspiration, by, by demanding or making you feel or making, insisting upon maintaining harmony in every area, in every art, in every pattern, in every element of your life. And it makes things so pleasant. That's the amazing thing about it, right? When, when she's not present, you're so unhappy. And when she is present, she brings so much joy. And to my view, that's the love of learning. The love of learning is, is maybe twofold, but, but primarily the love of learning is watching harmony at work, watching harmony bring resolution to discord, watching harmony simply sort of be there, because it's always delightful just being there. And then if there's a, another, how can I put this, another... I don't, I don't, I don't even remember what I was going to say. I started to say there's a second thing besides harmony or harmony. It's gone and maybe it'll come to me later, but, the, but harmony does this one thing and that's some, something else. I think it's important in all of this and I'll end with this and then transition because I think it's a good transition to the question of, of what's going on now. I've used the term rule right? That rhetoric is the ruler of the arts. And then I've said harmony rules even rhetoric. But you have to understand rule in a biblical way to really get the beauty of that. In human society, rulers gain power and beat people down so that they can't take it away, right? Thus, uneasy wears the head, is, lies the head that wears the crown. You know, in human society, to be in a position of authority and power is to be insecure and therefore to build walls around you and to keep others in subjection. That's why it's so astounding to think of our Lord dying on the cross, right? And, and by dying, giving up all his power, giving up all his strength, and by doing so, conquering death itself, right? He knew who the real enemy was. Ruling in our Lord's kingdom, in the kingdom of God, is a kingdom of peace. And the ruler in the kingdom of God doesn't become insecure. He doesn't, he doesn't worry about losing his power. He does concern himself with, and in that sense, worry about, but he concerns himself with fulfilling his duty. But really, there's a sense of, man, do I really have to have this much responsibility? Right? The person who wants to rule is probably not healthy. Which, is that, I mean, that's, to me, that's the, the fundamental crisis of democracy is that you have to run for office, right? which means that you're willing to. <laughs> now, you know, you can go too far on this. There are people who are called and born to, to exercise right authority, and they can do it with great humility because it's a calling from God. But the fundamental challenge, the fundamental temptation of power is staggering. And so when we think about, when we think about rhetoric ruling, and when we think about harmony ruling, we have to keep the two together. We have to remember that to rule, biblically speaking, is to bless, is to love, to serve. That we never, ever are justified as parents, for example, 
insisting that our children do things our way because that's the way we prefer it. Now, that doesn't mean the way you prefer it is irrelevant. It doesn't mean that, you know, that's not part of the equation. But one of the great challenges of being a parent is that you do prefer things a certain way for mixed motives. Right? Sometimes it's just because you like it that way. And sometimes it's because it's actually better in a given circumstance. And the children should learn to respect your preferences. But be very cautious about making your preferences divine preferences. You see what I mean? You see the, the distinction there? So it's always got to be the ruler in the Christian world is always dying to himself. So when we talk about rhetoric ruling, I have to emphasize again that the goal is never persuasion qua persuasion. The goal is persuasion for the sake of harmony in the community and the blessedness and flourishing of its members. I always come back to Psalm 1, right? We rule to help our children become the fulfillment of Psalm 1. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of living water. That's love. Being the river of living water that your child flourishes from. And I think it's important to, to, make, to, to think about ruling that way because as we think about the, the, the situation that we're in, you know, I, I, somebody recently said I'm always meta. And, I, you know, I apologize if I'm too much that way because I'll probably end up, therefore, in tonight's talk, beginning at least, at your big picture. Part of it is because you have to worry about and figure out what's practical for you in your circumstances. So I'm kind of going to go meta here. But this is what I think is going on fundamentally for the whole world right now with the coronavirus. We've lost our dominion, right? We were, we were, we, we, in a certain sense, those of us who have been living American luxury lives, which is to say we have bathtubs in our houses and cars that work most of the time, you know, the staggering luxuries that we live by, hot showers every day, can you imagine? We don't even need slaves to get the, the water hot for us. We just go in the bathroom and turn it on. That's why we can be so self-righteous about ages that had slaves, because we don't need them. But those of us who live in this luxury are, are really being brought up against the fact that we don't have as much dominion as we thought. And, and I would propose to you that anytime you're thinking about your reactions to and, and responses to the things going on, always be checking your dominion. Right now, understand, please, we're called to dominion. I'm not criticizing, I'm not saying you shouldn't have dominion. You've been given authority. You, heck, you've been given authority in, in Christ, we've been given authority over demons. Exercise that authority, right? That's more important than your authority over the mess in the living room, right? It's also harder, but so the living room is good practice. <laughs> but but it's I, I think so much of what's going on is is an issue of dominion. So what I want to address here, and I've got I, I, as I recall, I started at about what a minute after. What I want to do is is give you a framework for thinking about this issue of dominion. And the first thing I'll say is that dominion is one of six desires that that I believe are our God-given driving desires. And, and if you want more on that, I'll refer you to, the, to the, um, a few talks we did on, on the six desires. And I've talked about them in various contexts now. So um, just, you know, type, do a Google search, current six desires, and you'll probably find something somewhere. Um, but also, I am working on getting articles and stuff like that about it. I just think it's a really important concept. But dominion is one of the six desires God has given us. But please understand that that is one desire that is a refraction of one desire, the one desire, the real one desire of your heart that God placed there in the creation is to be united to him. And if, and if we can remember that, and if we can remember that that unity with God is broken, then we can understand what James is getting at in James 1 when he says, count it all joy when you encounter any trial, when you encounter various trials, right? Count it all joy, which psychologically is just an annoying thing. How many of you have ever been entered into a trial and somebody said, well, 
remember all things work together for good for them that love God. And you got annoyed at them. The funny thing about that is back in the 70s, it became trendy to get annoyed at people for saying that. I remember it, so, you know, before that you could say it and people would, would say, yeah, okay. And then in the 70s, people started getting annoyed at it. But the thing about it is, look, if, if, if you believe the gospel, is that not the most comforting thing you could possibly hear? And, and my opinion is that we have lost sight of the good that is being worked for us. The reason why we don't fall on our knees in gratitude to the person who quotes that verse and kiss that person's feet for giving us the cold water is because we've forgotten the good that God is working in us, that he's accomplishing. And so, so unlike Paul, who thinks of, of 39 lashes and shipwrecks and starvation and hunger as a momentary light affliction, we think they're world catastrophes, right? Paul sees them as a momentary light affliction doing something. Does anybody know what in 1 Corinthians, 1 or 2 Corinthians 4, I, sorry, he says this momentary light affliction is doing something. Does anybody know what it's doing? Well, in the interest of time, I'll just answer. You're probably going to, a few of you probably type it. But there it is, right? He, as I recall, it, it is working in you an eternal weight of glory. And he's making a proportion here, right? On the one hand, it's momentary. Whatever you are going through right now is momentary. What is working is something eternal. Whatever you are going through right now is light. I don't care what it is. Biblically speaking, it is light, but only in comparison to the weight. And right now, it's an affliction. It is an affliction. No doubt about it. It's an affliction. We don't like afflictions. But it's a momentary light affliction. And that momentary light affliction is what God is using to work in us. Not momentary, but eternal. Not light, but weight. Not affliction, but glory. And in my, I, I read a, a Facebook question I kind of enjoyed the other day. Somebody said, what do you think is the one doctrine least emphasized in the American church today? And everybody gave their opinions. And of course, everybody said whatever their most important doctrine was. I don't have any idea which is the, the least emphasized because how would I know? But I want to say this. I don't think we understand the first trace of what it means that he's working in us an eternal weight of glory. I thank God for the essay by C.S. Lewis called Weight of Glory. I thank God for that talk. I can't recommend it to you enough. Many, many people have found that to be a life-altering discussion because we take so much pride in the fact that we don't want glory, right? Think about that. We take so much pride, pharisaical pride, in the fact that we aren't doing this for our own glory. And we lose sight of the fact that God does want to glorify you. That God does. That, that if you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, he doesn't stomp on you and say, that's where you belong. He lifts you up. Right? We lose sight of that. And I, and I believe that fundamentally, whatever else is going on in this, in this coronavirus crisis or anything else you're experiencing, it's not worth it. It's too much pain. Life is too much pain. I recommend that you find the nearest bridge and jump off unless you believe that it is working in you an eternal weight of glory. Because I myself am a melancholic, inclined toward depression. And I'm perfectly happy. I'd be perfectly happy to be dead if that was my choice between, between what's been for me a pretty easy life, but it's still hard. I'm just dispositionally inclined toward death. <laughs> but if it's working in us an eternal weight of glory, right, then we should embrace that glory. So the one thing I want to encourage you to do during this time, the one thing I want to encourage you to do through it and permeating everything else you do is meditate on, 
rejoice in and ask God what it means that he's working in you an eternal weight of glory through this. Now that uses up the time by no means is that all there is to say about this issue, but I'm going to make a confession here and say that I do have a whole bunch of, you know, more or less practical points I was going to make. But before, before the session or yesterday, I was reading this book where the author was talking about how a really deeply spiritual person, a person who's deeply walking with God, you can encounter this person and you could ask them a question. And they might say five words. And you walk away as though your whole life just changed. Right? And there, there's, there's something so simple, so, so simple about spiritual reality. And so coming into this session, I asked the Lord to make to give me one simple thought, because I do. I wander all over the place, and, and maybe this is of him. Maybe this is what he wanted you to hear, that he wants to work in you an eternal weight of glory, and everything else that's happening now is for your glory. Remember the Lord's words to, to his disciples. That I, I love it so much. They're almost something you could put up in a nursery. He said to his disciples, do not fear, little children. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. What's that kingdom worth? What's that kingdom worth? That kingdom is a kingdom of peace and it's a kingdom of eternal glory. And that's what this is doing. Whatever else we're going to say, whatever else we can talk about, whatever advice you get in any other context, Compared to the fact that God is working in us an eternal weight of glory in order, and he's giving us his kingdom, does it really matter? Now, I know that I didn't get into practical stuff. If you want, I'll say one practical thing. Find some book that you really love and read it whenever you get a chance. Just do that. There's practical. Right? Lock your kids up in the bathroom for a half hour a day. It's practical. <laughs> or else yourself, lock somebody in the bathroom. <laughs> But but if but if you do that, but if you do that and you lose sight of the fact that this is working in you an eternal weight of glory, then you've taken a momentary light affliction and had a momentary light escape. What if that momentary light escape undercut the eternal weight of glory? Right? That's that's what we have to that's what we have to keep straight. So on Thursday, I'll talk a little bit more about, you know, maybe some of the practical stuff. And I'd also encourage you between now and then, I was going to ask tonight, actually, they crawl under the door anyway. I was going to ask you this question, so, so um, I'll ask it now and think about it for, for next class. What, what are the biggest challenges that you're running into? And, and, and maybe think of it in these categories. So the biggest challenges you're encountering, are they physical? Tiredness? Food poisoning? Are they? Is it? Is it sore back? Is it physical? Is it mental? Yeah, just keeping a straight mind, right? Is it emotional? Is it social? Some of you perhaps are having a really hard time seeing friends. Is is it social? Maybe maybe some of you are having a hard time seeing friends. <laughs> um, is it is it professional? Is this undercutting your career goals? Anything like that? Think about that for, for Thursday, and, and maybe we'll pick it up there. And then um, I have one other tip that I'm going to give you, practical thing, that I'm not going to quite call this spiritual, but it's a lot closer to being spiritual than you might think. And that is, whatever the cost, don't eat sugar. Uh, no, matter how much, no matter how much of a craving you get during this time, don't eat sugar. It is so bad for you when you're under stress. In fact, I'll just give a testimony here. In the last year and a half or so, I stopped eating sugar, and I was, I was an addict. Uh, I've lost 30 pounds utterly without effort just by not eating sugar, mostly, mostly meat. I mean, I've shifted to protein, but don't eat sugar. It, is, it just causes so much anxiety. It's so addictive. Changes your mouth chemistry. Changes your body chemistry. Avoid it like the plague because it is one. Okay. With that, went over time, sorry. What a surprise. Okay, so this question was just sent over. This person said, the last thing I want to do is shove, the fa is shove my faith down my children's throats or spoon feed them. 
I want them to experience it, see it in our lives, hear stories that resonate with them and be attracted to Jesus. How do I know if I'm forcing it without knowing it? Hmm. That's a beautiful question. Um, Katie, I want to turn that question to you because I, I think back on, on your childhood and I want to know, did you feel it forced on you? And how, how did you, what about the, what, what happened? I don't know how to put this exactly. You've been very faithful. You've been through some trials, but you've, but you've kept the faith and, and you, you, you accepted it. Why did you do that? How did you receive it? Versus it being forced upon me and then rejecting it. And was it forced on you? Was it forced? I think, well, first it depends on the age. Um, children, that's such a broad category. Before the age of, let's say, 10, I wouldn't say that faith was forced on me by any means, but a faithful life was forced on me. Habits of um, living. So, you know, morning prayers, evening prayers, church every Sunday, those things. But I mean, also none of us ever really resisted that. But I think there's a difference between having habits forced on you and having beliefs forced on you. And children, do you notice that? Because children are very willing to accept things that are given to them through the form of story and, and habits in life. It just seems very natural to fall in line when it's um, a beautiful part of life, when you see that everyone is getting up and reading their Bible, and when you see that everyone is going to church on Sunday and singing the hymns. You just have these associations with, with beauty, with calm, with peace that comes along with faith when you see it played out habitually in other people's lives. So then you just, you're drawn towards it because you want to be a part of that. Um, now you're talking then, about your mother primarily. Yeah, I saw that a lot with my mom. Um, also my grandparents, I spent summers living with my grandparents and they were very, um, very dedicated to having structured times with the Lord. And I always witnessed that and saw what that did for them and the atmosphere that that created. And, you know, kids notice these things. Um, like as a child, for some reason, I I would see someone, I don't know who it was, but I would see someone read their Bible after they made their bed. So now every time I see a freshly made bed, I think I have to sit on it and read my Bible. <laughs> like it's still an association there. Um, but kids very naturally associate habits with beliefs um, or thought, thought patterns. Um, and then, you know, once they hit 11, 12, 13, that's when it was less about having a lifestyle or habits forced on us and more about um, giving us space to question and challenge. And I did always feel that there was plenty of space for that, for asking questions and for, for challenging beliefs. One of the things that, that I've been challenged about or thinking about a lot, in fact, I had notes I was going to write an article about this, is, is um, propaganda how do you avoid propagandizing your child? And, and it's so interesting because in the modern world, there's people who are afraid to teach their children anything because mm -hmm. they think if they do, they're propagandizing them. Um, but I believe and therefore I speak yep. the Apostle Paul. Go ahead, kid. I, I was just going to say that um, propaganda in art is defined when the form and content don't align. When you're, when, you're, when you're creating a work of art that's just content, it's just to try and communicate your idea to people, but you're not trying to make it beautiful. You're not having excellence in form. You just have content without form. Um, and I think that applies to teaching as well. If we're just giving content and we're not also giving the form along with it, then it does become that propaganda. And I think that's, that's oh. really important because... Um, I love one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible is in Hebrews chapter one, when it talks about Jesus being the radiance of his glory. Speaking of glory, right? Um, him being the radiance of his glory means, means that there is a glory emanating from God, but we don't see it, do we? 
but Christ is the radiance of it because he's what we can see. And if, and if there's not a reality within us, if there's not a light within us, then we can become artificial. And that's when we start manipulating and, and that's when we start threatening and that's when we start cajoling. And in a, in a situation like that, it's kind of terrifying what that does to kids spiritually. I, I don't see that end well very often. It, it ends in one of two things. It'll either end in rejection or it'll end in somebody. Well, it can end in perfect faithfulness because God can use anything. But so it ends up in three things, either God's divine miracle or it ends up in, in a child rejecting as soon as he can think on his own. Or it'll end up in the child being fearful of leaving. But, you know, it's kind of the fear, firstborn disposition keeps him in the church. But, but then he's just a person in the church because he's afraid to leave the church. And he can't question anything. And, and, and it's not faith that keeps him there, but it's, it's the fear of what people would think of him or the fear of parental disapproval or something. And, and I think that we, we do have enormous power over our children all our lives. My father died 15 years ago. And, and, and I can't do anything in my life without it in some way being informed by and, and, and in some sense governed by my father. So we have this enormous power over our children. And we have, to, we have to be using it with such humility. In fact, one of the things that, that's, um, how can I put this? One of the things that's problematic about parenting is that we become insecure about our own parenting. We think that we don't have authority. In fact, this, this is another characteristic problem of our age. Our age doesn't respect authority, right? We're all fighting the revolution by the time we're three. So, so therefore, we as parents are accustomed to not being respected in our positions of authority, and we expect our children not to respect us. I was like this thoroughly. And I can remember when I started being a professional teacher, discovering that these students really respected me. In fact, I thought they respected me way too much. They were third graders, but I thought, I thought they, they had way too high a regard for me. They would have done almost anything I said. And that's, that's a terrifying thought. But you have to rest in that, you see. You, you have phenomenal authority over your children. And you have to rest in it. Because if you start, if you start pressing it and feeling insecure about it, you start, you start doing all the wrong things to, to uh, take control of your children. Um, let me use an example today. My daughter Larissa is here, and, and she went out shopping. And when she went out, she left behind her daughter Serafina. But the reason she left her behind is because when she was putting in her car seat, Serafina was having a fit. Now, Serafina occasionally has pretty great fits. She's about turned three, and she's at that age occasionally. But she's not a fit thrower, generally speaking. But Katie said, I mean, Larissa said, well, you're not coming with me then. So she brought her in the house and let Karen and me have her. <laughs> and she stood at the window and she screamed like bloody murder for quite a while. And I was in a meeting. So I went, I went downstairs. And because I'm a grandparent, it's, you know, you care less. It's, you know, it's not my problem. But, but I, went, I went downstairs and when I, when, if it was Katie when she was three and I would have been 32 or whatever, I would, I would have been pretty insecure and I would have felt some need to overpower her, right? To demonstrate to her that I'm the boss, right? And I had none of that feeling as a grandparent. It was weird. I had none of that feeling. So I just went downstairs and, and told her what she was doing and she didn't stop. It was no magic trick. She took a while, frankly, to to behave, but the difference was not in her, it was in, it was in me, because I'm an old wretched being who's got not, nothing left to live for. But, but you know, the, the whole, that whole, when you're, when you're a younger parent, I just think there's this, this incredible insecurity about your authority. And try to take hold psychologically of the reality that God has placed within your child a, a really profound reverence for you. 
And if you forget about that and try to replace it with your own authority from coming from within yourself, then very gradually you'll eat away at the divine authority that's been placed in you. And that, and they won't respect your, your fleshly, let's call it. They won't respect your fleshly authority as much as they ex- express uh, the divine authority that's already there. It's been given. And I don't mean to idealize, and I'm, not, I'm by no means saying this is, you know, everything's easy, but I just mean, you know, worry about the right things. And, and, and one of the right things is not holding on to your power over your children. Yeah, this is good, the, a secure fortress. I love that. Yeah, right? Doing it all the right way. All these, those are such, such important points. I mean, we all, we all go into parenting convinced that, that we could have raised all those brats that we saw other people raising so much better, right? And then about two weeks later, we realize that we are wrong <laughs> and sorry, and, and, and we are saved by the bearing of children, right? But there's no greater gift than humility. And, and if, uh, yeah, and if our children are the means by which God humbles us, then they are the means by which God works in us an eternal weight of glory. Katie, I, I kind of took it back from you. Do you want to add anything more about, especially the propaganda bit, the coercion? No, it's okay. I was just texting that because somebody had, had written me a question about it. That's all. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like this comment about how awful a parent you really are. The last thought then that I'll just throw out here on the, on the whole propaganda manipulation is that the most important thing is that you remember that it's not going to be your cleverness that raises your children. It's going to be the Holy Spirit authentically living in you. And so you have to, you, you have to randomly, I'm not randomly, you have to foolishly abandon them to the grace of God. Just throw them on the grace of God. And when you when you make every colossal mistake in the book, just blame God. I think that's the key here. I'm joking about that last bit. Just completely abandon them to God. Firstborns need their own support group. Every 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 younger sibling to those firstborns needs their own support group. Victims of firstborns, that's what they should be called. It's not fair. Every family has a firstborn. Um, Go ahead, Kate. Okay. Um, this other question is related to the ones that have come beforehand. It doesn't initially sound related, but it is. Um, how does teaching... Pardon? Everything's related. I believe but this is very related. How does teaching the Greek myths play out over the student's education and make it essential to classical education? So this person can't foresee how these myths are going to play out in the upper yeah. levels. Or so how, how, how do you perceive that being related to the, to the other questions? I think it's obvious. <laughs> <laughs> poetic knowledge. Okay. All right. Poetic knowledge. That's good. No, is that not obvious? Not, no. No, not to everybody. Okay. Poetic knowledge, if you're not familiar with it, is the name of a book by James Taylor, Dr. James Taylor. He died just a couple months ago now. This is, this is a book that by the grace of God, I was led to uh, right when I first got involved in classical education. And this is world changing if you're teaching people, if you're thinking. And, the, and I'll just tell you that, that James, who became a very good friend, said, make sure that if, if you trick people into getting this book, you tell them, read the last two chapters first. Okay, the last two chapters are where you get some narrative, and it's, it's, um, it's friendlier. The first five chapters are basically Thomistic philosophy um, brought up to modern thought, modern times. Um, amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. And, uh, okay, so, so, so Katie says that Thomistic, I'm sorry, that, that poetic knowledge is the link between raising children and during the coronavirus and Greek mythology. You want to help us with that? How, how so? Okay. Um, well, it cut out again, right? When you were explaining everything you're explaining about that book. So I don't know what you've said so far about poetic knowledge. 
Did you talk about just go moral on. imagination or anything? No, you know fine. Just tell them what you okay. think. We have a minute anyway. Um, I mean, there, there's so many different ways that this connects to what we've been talking about. On one level, facing adversity and having the imagination to even see that there could be a promise of glory behind the adversity. Um, the ability to develop moral imagination comes through reading excellent stories and myths can be really important for that because they're short, they're archetypal, they're um, designed for children. And so they're very accessible for developing moral imagination. Um, but then also we've talked a bit about um, showing Christ to your children without forcing him upon them. And I believe that that's the beauty of story is that it presents truth, which is ultimately Christ, um, in, in a really desirable way for kids. And, um, and I think the key with myth that sets it apart from, let's say, literature are, is the use of archetypes and the nature of myth as intentionally being a story that teaches people where they come from, how to relate to community, how to relate to the powers that are greater than they are. Um, all of these, all of these different um, harmonizing elements of myths are are more prominent in myth and legend than like great literature. So um, I think that's hmm. the I guess the two biggest ways that that um, Greek myth relates to what we've been talking about so far. But I bet I could come up with more. But uh-huh. you could also come up with many more. I'm sure you could. But but let me let me say. I always, I consider a day, I won't say I would consider a day lost, but I I will consider a day inadequately lived if I haven't opened up at some point, Homer. And so the Iliad and the Odyssey are, you know, these, these are the two greatest poems ever written outside the Bible. And in terms of artistic quality, not very many poems in the Bible are as, as, uh, forgive me for saying this, but as well composed as the Iliad and the Odyssey. And the thing I would add to what what Katie is saying is that every single myth, every story is essentially a projection of human desire, right? So if you want to make it, put it in a demeaning way, um, every story is wishful thinking. If you want to know what humans want, read their stories. And if you want to know what humans want in the deepest, deepest, deepest recesses of their soul, read the stories that have been told the most and have stuck around the longest. That's why they used to say, back when they read Homer, they used to say that that, um, Virgil learned that to imitate nature was to imitate Homer. Because because Homer saw into human nature with a profundity that is that is you you, you spend your whole life skimming skimming it and and the reason well the points about Tolkien are exceptionally accurate Tolkien was a Homeric uh, was a Homeric author I mean think about think about the um, journey in the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit what are we talking about it's the Odyssey. Right. And this is a weird thought, but I mean, the Odyssey is one of the best books I've ever read on dealing with temptation. It's not even written by a Christian, but Christians aren't the only people who are tempted. If you have something you want to achieve in life, you're going to be tempted. Right. The reason we're tempted is because there's something we want to get done or become. And that is to become like Christ. So we get tempted from that. Well, the Odyssey is is such a phenomenal book on, on dealing with temptation. And it's also great on storytelling. So that's the first thing I would say is that every story is, by virtue of the fact that it's told, is a projection of somebody's desire. If your child is telling you a story, he's telling you what he wants. Okay. This, the, second, the second thing I would add is that stories give us maps. And that comes to Katie's archetype point. They give us maps. This is a big deal in norms and nobility. We don't know how to live in this world. This world is, this world is insane to the senses. 
we 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 experience it through the senses and and it doesn't particularly make sense to us we have to we have to find within our souls an order that we can relate to the world with stories help us do that stories help us do that there's a really good article by the way if you've ever heard of David, I don't know how you say his last name. I think it's Mamet, M-A-M-E-T. He's a, mu- a movie maker, and he's been making movies for a long time, some of which I'm sure you've seen. I don't know if I ever have, because I don't know what he's made, but he was pretty famous. And then about 10 or 15 years ago, he had a something, I guess you could call it a conversion. He was living in what he called the, the liberal bubble or progressive maybe, but he was living in this bubble. And then one day he just started thinking about the facts <laughs> and, and he rejected, he rejected the whole worldview that he'd been suffering under. He wrote an article last week, or it's going to be published June 1st in the national review magazine. And it's called the code and the key or the key in the code. You can read it online now. And it's all, it's about making movies and stories and, and, and then relating it to politics, but it's about how to decode life. And it's really interesting. I'm only about a third of the way through, but it's really interesting. And he's cat. He's on storytellers. Understand this. You tell stories because people need to understand the world they live in. That's fundamentally why we tell stories. We're trying to figure the world out. We're trying to figure ourselves out. That's why the Bible is mostly story. I love so much the fact, get, think about this for a second. Just think about this. In the Bible, there are 69 chapters before the law. In the 70th chapter in the Bible, it finally tells us the law. Because without the 69 chapters of stories, the law would not have made any sense. And yet we do the opposite in our schools. For example, first day of school, first thing we do, these are the rules, right? I think, we, I think, you, I think you owe them 69 days of stories and then the 70th day you tell them the rules or something like that. I just find that fascinating that there's 69 chapters of stories. The name of the book, well, if, they, if, if, the, uh, if the book you're referring to is the article, I would say it, it, it's called um, the the. the, the the key and the code, or the code and the key. It is called The Code and the Key by David Mamet. I think it's May 14th, I guess. I thought it was June 1st. I think it's going to be printed on June 1st, but it's available now on May 14th. Yeah, got it. There it is. Yeah, you have types and you have archetypes, right? A type is is an image of something, uh, something that helps you understand something else. An archetype, arche is Greek for, for ruling. Right, so or beginning even. So N R K Ainho Logos is in the beginning was the logos. An archetype is a is the is the dominant type, a ruling type, one that every culture has. Every culture in the world has has the archetype of journeys home. There's no culture that's ever existed that didn't make journeying home a, a core event in their literature. Think of Rome, the Aeneid, right? Um and if by, let me just add that any culture that has tried to not have a journey home hasn't succeeded as a culture. We, we thrive and fall on our stories. Okay, um, we're going way over on these questions. So give me, give me two more questions and, I'll, and I'll, I'll answer each one in one minute. And um, I really will. Okay. What do you say when homeschooling parents feel that they cannot teach because they're not experts in a given area? Tough luck, do it anyway. What, do you have the idea that at school you have experts teaching things? That's, 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 just, that's just life today. There's, there's, there's expertise at the highest levels of some professions, there are people who are experts. Right. But you don't need to be an expert to be a teacher. What you need, what you, especially of children, what you need to be a, to, to teach children is you need to be a person who's, who can who can who can order thoughts 
and teach a child how to order thoughts, right? And there are no experts in the seven liberal arts today. So that's one point I would make there. There simply aren't any experts in the seven liberal arts. So make your children those experts. Um, the need for expertise is a modern uh, technique method driven problem. And what you need is, is you need a love of truth, a humility before it, a receptivity to truth and simplicity. And, and, and I can't stress enough. Okay, so there you go. Our thoughts are, are so out of order. Well, that's, that's how we are. That's because that's we're broken. What we need to do is rest in our Lord and then gradually, okay, think of it this way. Imagine that you walk into a room and there's a thousand piece puzzle spread all over the floor. Okay, and you think, what a mess, I have to clean it up. Okay, well, you got two options to do that. You can look at all those individual pieces and you can sort them and try to build the puzzle or you can get a vacuum cleaner and sweep it up. So my, my advice is the vacuum cleaner, right? Our, it, the, the, the image breaks down, but our, but our Lord is, he makes things so simple and we make things so complex. And if we, we, we have to believe what our Lord said to Martha, you're worried and anxious about many things. Only one thing is needful. And that everything else will flow out of that. I, I promise you that if you see Christ and the kingdom of God in your home, all that stuff will follow. I know that's not the question. You asked about expertise. But, I mean, I guess my response to the, to the expertise question is to blow it off. Don't worry about it. There are no experts in schools. They've all learned technologies and techniques for teaching that manifestly don't work. So you, you didn't pull your kids home from school because you wanted to do things the way they do it there. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then teach them to the best of your ability. You're supposed to tell me when a minute's up. You're mutated. Can you hear a word? Sorry. Yep, totally my fault. I let you go on. I was responding to people in the chat box. Gosh, people are just too interesting. That's the problem. I am the object of your adoration and devotion, not all these other people. Yes, you see people, <laughs> how growing up I was never forced into anything. <laughs> okay. Last question. I our family is not a cult, usually. Mm. Okay, there is another question here, and I don't know what this question is responding to, um, but it says, can you speak more about the idea of a student writing their own book? Is this, maybe this was to somebody else? <laughs> Do you not know what this is? Well, I don't recall telling kids to write their own books. Um, I have said I don't like textbooks. It's possibly related to that. Um, or maybe somebody is just saying, I'd like my kid to write their own book. In which case I would say, go for it, but uh, give them 20 years. I mean, you're right, writing, writing a book is is an enormous challenge. I'll say this, that no matter what you're writing, you have to do invention, arrangement, and elocution. And the, the uh, analogy I would do is, I would use with your child if they're writing their own book is, is the, the, the nestled dolls again, the nested dolls, right? So a rudimentary essay is this tiny little doll, then an introductory essay is like that, and then a basic essay is like that, and it's, you know, the complete complete level one lost tools of writing essay becomes this big, but just keeps expanding. And one day you're going to have a doctoral thesis, but it's the same basic skills. You're still going to be asking the same five questions. You need to fill out the outline that that particular kind of writing uses, and you need to find the appropriate, the appropriate expressions, but you're not going to learn. You're never going to learn any skills that in writing that weren't basically taught in, in that level one lost tools of writing or in the, essentials of classical rhetoric. So if you want your children to write a book, um, I would start by having them write a paragraph or maybe a sentence. Um, but I may be completely missing the point of the question, in which case I'm very sorry. Uh, this might, I don't know if you've mentioned this before, but is it possible that this is referring to when you taught high school humanities and you have them put together 
like cumulative research projects? I don't know if I've ever mentioned that, but it could be. Yeah. It could be. The key, let me just add then that the key to writing something long is to remember that it's a bunch of small things. And you can you could write an, an entire encyclopedia given enough time and enough index cards. So you uh, if if you want them to do a large report, then the the key really becomes the structure of it. Right. What, what you need to learn for the different kinds of writing is the structure of the kind of writing. So if it's a novel, you, 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 you say, OK, you need to write 10 chapters that are going to complicate this guy's life. Come up with 10 ways to do that. Right. You can do it as just trivial exercises like that, the formulaic stuff at first. And then they, they get creative. I think rewriting fables is, is absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I, I, I'm thinking imitation, right? That's, 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 you have to imitate, you have to translate some, but I'm, I'm thinking here particularly in writing a large project. The thing you need to do to make a large project is make a lot of little ones. And, and the way you do that is by identifying what are the parts of the large project, and that's going to be in a book. You know, there's going to be some guide that'll tell you. This is the large project doctoral thesis. And then you identify the parts of, of the parts and then you, you assemble it. Now, the way I'm describing it sounds like you're building an insect, but, but that's because there's a, there's a structure, right? That's the rhetoric side, let's say. And then you have to make room for the spirit to breathe on it. And, and you, do have to, you do have to have harmony. You do have to gaze on the thing you're thinking about. You do have to do invention. You need to reflect. And then that will determine the quality. But without the structure, it doesn't matter how much insight you have. You won't be able to communicate it. Okay. Whoever asked I that question, I would like to know if I got anywhere close to what was being asked about. This was one of the ones that was sent in a long time ago, so there's no way oh. to me, for me to confirm the context. Um, I, do, I do think, though, if you're teaching high schoolers, if you have older kids, it is good to, instead of work from a textbook, to compile something like a book over the course of the semester, over the course of the year. So by the end, they have, you know, sections for notes, sections for essays, sections for other research projects or whatever the case may be. So they can feel as though they have put together a book of sorts. Oh, I bet that, that, yeah. that is a good idea for older kids. Yeah, I always, I always did have my kids assemble even third grade, you did this. I had them assemble. They kept all the notes and they kept all the handouts and they kept all their homework and everything. At the end of the year, I put it in a file and I said, here, when you get to college, take this with you and you won't have to study in college. But the. Um, That's not how it worked. On the first day, you gave us a table of contents and told us exactly how to keep our structure in our binders. And then the at the end, you graded them according to whether we kept it all year long in third grade. Yeah, well, that was good of me. But nonetheless, <laughs> the point I was making is that when you when you go to college, you've already got everything you need compared to what anybody else is going to have there. So mm -hmm. I started. I, I, <laughs> yeah, let the kids let the kids assemble something that they're going to be proud of having done and that they're going to be able to look at and say, wow, I did a lot this year. Right. They, they deserve to know that they just covered a lot of ground because let's face it, most kids at the end of the school year are relieved that it's over. And they want it and they want to escape until they get thrown back in prison in the fall. Right. So so they don't come out of it thinking, wow, did I cover a lot of ground? And there's nothing to tell them that they did because they're not looking around inside their head. They don't care about what's going on in there. They want to know. They want to know what's going on out there in the world. So give them some kind of artifact that, at the end of the year, they can look at it and say, "Whew, man, I learned a lot this year." It's a good feeling. Or, "Wow, I sure got some bad grades this year." Yep. Oh, wow. The great thing too about that is that Katie actually remembers these things. I I don't remember anything. Yeah, that's a good they, one. They say you remember painful things the best, so. That could be it, yeah. That's why you remember <laughs> me so well. <laughs> I'm kidding. It wasn't painful. We'll all remember this experience with the, uh, the virus, won't we? Nice to see all of you. Enjoy, enjoy your plague. 
And let's keep praying for each other. Though. More than anything, let's keep praying for each other. Um, but let's And let's humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord because he will lift us up. And may the Lord remember you in his kingdom. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.